We are today wrapping up our series on revival before starting a new series um, next week for, for the summertime. But uh, some of you guys know, or you would have gotten as you gotten to know me, you would know that I love plants. And it's interesting where I was thinking about that yesterday, like where that love for plants started. Now the first memory I have of really like, I can remember working in the vegetable garden with my parents and stuff like that, but the first memory I truly have of falling in love with plants was when I was in grade four, and I had a teacher who had an African violet. Who knows African violets? They make really pretty flowers. Okay, so you know them. I thought it's just African. At least it's not. Um, So he had an African violet, but it was basically dead. It had two living leaves, and the one was halfway on its way out. And how I got that plant, I do not know, but somehow I got his half-dead African violet, and I took it home, and I started taking care of it. My grandmother always said, you speak to your plants, right? And then they grow better. So all of you who have black thumbs, that's the secret. So um, I started speaking to my African violet, and um, started taking care of it. And it grew into not only a beautiful bush, but I would take some cuttings from that plant and create new baby plants from it. And for years, my bookshelves when I was a kid were full of plants, and um, it's still a passion I have. But there is something beautiful about seeing something that's half dead regain its life. There's something special about seeing something that's half dead being revived. And that is what we are talking about in this series, just as I found a love for plants in that African violet that was half dead, and I saw it being revived, and that created a lifelong passion for plants. I think so something can happen in our lives when we talk about revival as well. When I was a student, I first heard about revival, and... I started really thinking and dreaming and praying, like, what if God does something like revival in His church again? What if He takes His half-dead church and He turns it into something that's flourishing and blossoming and basically giving birth to new babies, to new churches? And that is why we started this series. I started this series with the hope that we can give a glimpse to you about what revival is truly about so that we all can develop a passion for it. Selwyn Hughes um, defined revival this way. I quickly want to define it before we talk about today's topic. He said, revival is a glorious, majestic, mighty, awesome act of God in which he sweeps his church from a spiritual bankruptcy into spiritual riches. Like That's such a beautiful illustration, right? It's a sovereign act of God we spoke about before, in the sense that only God can initiate it. It's not something that we do. It's not an evangelistic meeting, but it is God truly changing and breathing new life into his church. But we also learn that we've got a responsibility. So when God is ready to send revival to his church, God approaches those of us who are ready for it. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. Our last topic in this series is where does revival start? Because we've spoken about this concept of what it is, about why God sends it, about um, when it comes, but Where does it start? That is the question today, and we're going to continue the line that we started with last week by going really deep and personal 
Um, so today we won't be talking about the church corporately, but more about us as the church, as individuals, what it means for us as Christians. And we're going to read probably the most famous revival passage in the Bible. If you've ever been to any meeting that talks about revival, um, you have heard this pa- passage. In South Africa, we had a, um, a farmer, Angus Bucken. He made a movie. They made a movie about his life, Faith Like Potatoes. There's a book about his life. Some of you might have seen it. But he's basically like the Billy Graham for South Africa. And he used to preach about this so many times. I've heard messages about this so many times. And today, I'm going to focus on this short little text from 2 Chronicles, or 2 Chronicles 7, Because I believe it gives us a formula on how to prepare our own hearts for revival. We're not going to have a bunch of stories about revival today. Today we're really just going to dig deep into this. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can keep it open to this text. And we're going to look at our own hearts as we work through this. But we're going to be reading, if you've got your Bibles, Old Testament 2 Chronicles 7, um, Solomon We had King David who kind of brought Israel to a position of strength. Then his son Solomon took over and it was probably the most fruitful and blessed time in the history of Israel. Solomon had very little enemies. The kingdom expanded. He had incredible riches and wealth. And um, he finally, the temple that his dad, David, wanted to build for God, finally Solomon built that temple And then he dedicated the temple to God, and God gives a promise, because God knew that although they just built a temple, although it might seem good, the human heart will always struggle to stay connected to the Creator. The human heart will always struggle to stay focused on God, because it will focus on myself. That's our nature, right? So God tells them that if you turn away from me, there is going to be consequences because God wants us to turn back to him. But God says the moment that we are willing to turn back, here is a promise. So Second Chronicles 7 verse 14 to 16, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. After God warned them not to turn away from them, he said, then, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and set it apart to be holy, a place where my name will be honored forever. And I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for a simple text through which you spoke words that echoes for thousands of years. It still changes lives here today. I pray that as we go through this text, Jesus, as we work through it, that your spirit will truly speak to each one of us individually that we will walk out of this place different than how we walked in. Pray in your name. Amen. 
We're literally going to basically work through this text word by word and see what God's formula is for revival. Now, the first part of this text starts with, if my people are called by my name. We've said this throughout this series, that revival starts with God. Like that plant couldn't revive, that African violet that I had couldn't revive itself, right? It needed someone to take care of it, to water it, to fertilize it, to cut off the dead leaves so that it can put its energy into the new growth. And just as that plant needed someone to take care of it, to bring revival to it, so the church needs God. Revival originates with God. And often when we think of revival, we've already spoken about why God sends it, to bring glory to His name. But often people start looking for revival because they're so frustrated with the world around them, the broken world, the world that hurts, the world that is struggling. And then Christians tend to criticize and condemn unbelievers, people who do not believe in Jesus, people who do not follow the Bible, for their unbiblical standards and practices. And that is the wrong place to start when we're talking about revival. When we start, when the church starts speaking about the world outside more than about God, when the church is more concerned about what's going on on the outside rather than what what starts on the inside, we start to create what I love to call the fortress mentality. We build really high walls to protect what is inside and we keep everyone that's different, everyone that's on the outside, we'd like to keep them out. And slowly we start to believe as a church that we are so holy that we start to not see our own mistakes and our own shortcomings. But our eyes, when we talk about revival, and when I say our, I want you to think today of mine, of my own heart and my own life. My eyes need to be turned inwards as a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I want to say this again, this revival series is a family conversation, it's for the church, but if you're not a Christian, maybe today God is speaking to you through the sex about what He wants to change and do in your life. Because revival starts with God's people, and it is so easy in the world we're living in. I just watched a a series on Netflix the other day um, where it's this revelation of a God that tells um, this main character that all religions worship the same God. And it is so easy for us to be like, oh, is it religious people? If religious people see God's face, is that when he will send revival? But God is very specific and he's very clear, not just my people, not just the Israelites, but he says, my people who are called by my name. People who carry the name of the Messiah of Jesus. People who's been included in that family by carrying someone's name, my family name, my last name, my surname is Skippers. That is my identifying name, family name, right? And when we believe in Jesus, we carry his name. That becomes the identifying mark of our lives. That becomes our new last name. We become followers of Christ. We are Christians. And God says, it's not just anyone that can call on my name. It's not anyone religious. It's not just anyone who does good. But when my people, the people I've chosen, the people who carry my name, when they turn back, that's where it starts, It is not just anyone, it's people who know God intimately. People who are linked to God in this family relationship. And I want to tell everyone listening to this today that are Christians, I want to tell you it is a huge privilege to carry the name of God. But it is also a really, really big responsibility. 
Because people judge God by the impressions we make on them. I'm going to say that again. The world judges God by the impressions we make on them. That's why people say, I like the Christian God because he says all kinds of nice things, but I don't like the Christians. And at the end of the day, people say, like, I've been hurt by the church, so they never come back and they stop following Jesus because they judge God by the impressions we make on them. The world starts saying stuff like, if this is what serving God is like, I don't want anything to do with it. But God starts with His church. Why? Why does God want us to turn to Him, His people who carry His name? He starts, revival starts with the people of God. Because once we are right, it won't take long to put the world right. Every time revival has sparked in the church, it affected the whole community and the whole world around it. People started seeing in the church the characteristics of God. They started seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. They started seeing the love of Jesus. They started to see the life-transforming power, the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. And suddenly the whole world falls into place, falls right with God because the church changed. So just as they judge God based on our bad behavior, the world will also judge God based on our right behavior. And therefore God starts with His church. Because if we truly live different, and I know in Canada the Protestant church is a small percentage, a small drop in the bucket. 18% of people call themselves Protestant Christians. Not all of them actually love and serve Jesus. But I years ago read a study where they talked about how if 10% of a population, hear this, if 10% of a population holds to an unshakable belief, they say the rest will follow. Just 10% of this country really lives. Jesus, the rest will follow. Therefore, when we are talking about revival, where does it start? It starts with me and it starts with you. And it's so easy for us to think it starts with the corporate church. But the church is not, we said there's not a building, it's not an hour. The Bible says the Greek word for church is ecclesia. And ecclesia means it is the people of God gathered together to worship Him. It is you and it is me. And that is where God starts with us. And He says, like, what should we do? What is our responsibility in seeking revival? And the text continues. He says, if my people were called by my name, God says, what do they need to do? Will humble themselves. Like, why does God start with humility? Why doesn't God say, when my people truly care about revival, or when my people truly pray, why does He start with humility? Because the opposite of humility is pride, right? And I believe pride is one of the biggest barriers in our life that prevents God from having His way in our lives. Pride is one of the biggest barriers in the church that prevents God from having His way in His church. The old theologians put pride at the top of the seven deadly sins. Because I think so much of our issues flow out of that, right? Out of pride comes this inclination towards self-interest. Where everything is always about me, 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 and I, I, I. Everything, I, I, everything which comes up has this self-reference. Whether it is my promotion at work, whether it is the way I relate to my husband or wife. 
whether it is the way I relate to my friends, we have turned into a society of individualists where everything is firstly about me, myself, and I. And I believe there can only be real victory in any Christian's life if they have victory over pride. As long as pride is in our lives, we're not going to have any real victory in our lives. And therefore God says we need to humble ourselves. If my people will humble themselves. It's interesting that God doesn't say I will humble you and then it will change. Because God can humble us. God humbled Paul, this fancy religious leader that we read about last week, when a light fell on him and he was blind for three days. God humbled him in that moment. And God can humble me and he can humble you through all kinds of ways. But it's interesting that God says, I want you to humble yourself. Because it's something different when I take responsibility for it. It's more meaningful when I take responsibility for my humility instead of just being like, oh God, you have to do it because I can't do it myself. There's a responsibility that I pick up and carry with me and saying like, I am not going to wait for someone else. I'm going to take the initiative in this. Pride leads to many evils. But I think the biggest evil consequences of pride, the biggest one is that it blocks the way to revival. And therefore God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, and then he says, will pray and seek my face. And the first thing that comes to mind is, but doesn't all Christians pray? Isn't that just naturally part of our lives? We all should pray, right? Even people who are not Christians sometimes say that they pray when something happens. So don't we just all pray? But here's the question. It's not just do we pray, but how much do we pray? How sincerely do we pray? How, if we look at the previous point, how unselfishly do we pray? When last did you stay up late just to pray? When last did you get up early just to pray? Most of the time, this is the sad reality for me and probably for you, is that we pray out of the habit because it's something I do before every meal. As my family, we still hold hands and pray before every meal, even if it's in a restaurant, because I believe even that is a testimony to the world. But sometimes it's just out of habit, right? Sometimes it's just a prayer that, that my mom taught me when I was a little kid. And sadly, sometimes we just pray when we need something, and I can't sort it out myself. Then suddenly I turn to God, I'm like, God, please help me. But prayer isn't about me getting what I want. Prayer is not about bending God's will to mine. Prayer is about bending my will to His. And there's a big difference. You see, the kind of prayer that God calls on His church, on His people to pray, isn't merely praying. It's not just the prayers that we, that we pray so often. The prayer that He talks about here is a time of 
a deep encounter with Him. We, we don't just have verbal diarrhea and just speak whatever we want and ask Him for whatever we want. It's not just brief and it's not just hurried, but it is the unhurried being in the presence of God and truly, what does He say? Seeking His face. That's more than just saying words. That is that waiting in the moment to say, God, I want to encounter you. It is the kind of prayers that the Old Testament prophets prayed where they would not quit until God, there was a breakthrough. It's the kind of prayers that I've prayed often in my life and that I do not pray nearly enough. When I was a youth pastor, we had these sea camps um, over December summer holidays, yes. We would go to the ocean. We were five churches that would go together, about 250 kids. I just started at this church, and I heard about how these camps truly unraveled. Like, they had to lock the kids in because they would sneak off at night, get on the train, go into the city and go and drink and bring alcohol back and get drunk, and it was a mess. So the first time I am there, I show up, and it truly is a mess. And part of the mess is that the leaders were the instigators of these problems, and I didn't know how to handle it. I was a young theology student, and I was very clearly made aware that I'm a student, and the pastors there are the ones in charge. And second last evening, I had no idea what to do. And we, had, we planned this evening with these different stations where kids could have different encounters to, um, with God through um, Bible reading, through prayer, through all kinds of things. And before it, we had some quiet time. And so there was a cross in the little hall, and I bowed before that cross, and I poured my heart, and I'm like, Jesus, I have no idea how to fix this problem. And I didn't really want to partake in any of the other stuff with the other guys because I was really unhappy in my heart with what's going on. And I prayed that night as I've never prayed before. And that evening, I took a prayer station where... Um, I said, like, I'm going to be there. If anyone needs prayer, I will be there and I will pray for you. And I was sitting there for a little while and a kid came and I started praying for them. And I truly believe that God revealed an incredible way. And that story for another time, some things that were going on in these kids' life. And I asked them, like, listen, is this going on in your life? And they're like, yeah. And I prayed for them. And um, the, the lineup starts getting longer and I feel something is really going on that's so outside of my comfort zone, what I've known, that I get up, I walk out, I go and call my dad. I'm like, listen, something weird is happening here. I truly believe it's the Holy Spirit. Someone knocks on my door while I'm on the phone with my dad. And they're like, listen, you need to get back to the prayer room because there is a line of kids lining up all the way through the camp. The same kids that wouldn't participate in anything that were getting drunk is standing in a queue to be prayed for. And that camp was never the same. Not because of something I did, not because of a great message or the best music or the best leaders we had, but because I believe in that prayer where I was on my knees and was at the end of my wit, and I was like, God, I need you to intervene where I can do nothing. That prayer of seeking God's face and not getting up, that unhurried prayer of just being in His presence, that is what turns things around. Me bending my will to his will. But God says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And then he says this, and will turn from their wicked ways. I'm like, that's some strong words, right? 
Would you describe yourself as a wicked person? Probably not. I don't think anyone would be like, oh, I'm so wicked. Maybe some people, that's weird, I don't know. But I'm like, if, if, if I had to describe myself, I would rather say sometimes I make mistakes, I'm a little bit careless, you know, like I've, I've got issues. I'm describing myself as wicked. And I wonder if often we don't just let ourselves off lightly, sometimes just to ease our own conscience because, conscience, because we're like, I'm not as bad as the people like out there. I'm not as bad as this person that I saw last night at, at this party. I'm not as bad as that person. And we let our, ourselves off lightly. But this is the interesting part of God's word in James 2 verse 10. We read that if we stumble in just one rule of God, we have broken all of them. We become so good at rationalizing our actions and behaviors away that we forget to see how wicked we are in the eyes of a perfect, holy God that has no sin in Him. Gossip, criticizing other people, condemning them, wounding others by our words and our actions, Failing to forgive, failing to ask for forgiveness. The acquisition of money that dominates our thinking, watching degrading films, listening to degrading music, all of that is wicked ways, the Bible says. But I'm not as bad as other people, right? They do worse things than I do. But I'm like, how can these... Things be in the hearts of those who claim to know the way. And I am sure that if I ask you today, do you expect me to be different as the lead pastor of Grace Church? I'm sure all of you will be like, yes, we expect you to be different. We expect you to lead by an example. We expect you to not cheat on your wife. We expect you to be honest in all of your dealings. Here is the thing. I think the world has a right to expect all of us to be different who calls on the name of Jesus. I want to tell you, I think we need to get to a place where we break with our wicked ways because Jesus has already paid the ransom for our sin. He's already made us free. We just sang about that. I'm not a slave to my first impulses or to my sin. He changed all of that. But we need to start living like free people. Not like those who are still bound by our own brokenness. And God says when you and I, when we are ready as the people of God called by His name to humble ourselves, to pray, to seek His face, and to turn from our wicked ways, He says, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will restore your land. Do you believe that as you prepare your own heart? Do you believe that God can restore this land to something we've never known? Do you believe that God can restore your family that's so broken that you think there's no hope for it? Do you believe that God can truly forgive you, even for that sin that you keep hidden from everyone else? Do you believe that God can come again and restore us corporately also as His church? I do. Because I look at the history and I, and I've preached about this after Easter, I don't put my hope on a God 
just because I grew up that way. I don't put my hope on a God just because there's some words written on paper. I put my hope in a God who has throughout time proven again and again that He's faithful, that He's a promise keeper, that He's a loving Father. I put my hope in a God who has since Pentecost throughout generations proven that He is faithful to this word. That's why I believe it. And God's promise of forgiveness and restoration is a sure and a certain promise that you and I can trust. I'm like, why would God do this? Solomon just had this huge festival and opened the temple to the people of Israel. And already God knew, we're like, oh, yeah, the stars are good, but you're going to mess up. I'm like, why would God give this promise that no matter how bad we mess up, no matter how dark the world gets around us, no matter how broken we feel or how ashamed we are of what we've done, why does He give this problem that He will hear, that He will forgive, and that He will restore? And that's why I added verse 15 and 16. Because he says it so beautifully that his eyes are open and that his ears are attentive to every prayer. The prayer that you prayed that you felt just hit the ceiling. The prayer that you maybe prayed because you're not a Christian and you have no idea if it's going anywhere. You have no idea if anyone is listening. God says, I'm attentive to your words. Whether they are big or small, whether it's long sentences or short ones, whether they are broken or perfectly fluent. He's attentive to it. Why? Because he says this is his chosen temple, set apart, dear to his heart, and his name will be honored through it. And you're like, hey, but that was a building that Solomon built. Yes, it was. What was the purpose of that building? The purpose of that building was to have a resting place for the ark of God, where God said, my presence will always be with that ark, because the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out. So God chose to be present at certain times in certain places, and He chose to be present wherever His ark was at. But it was so majestic that if you read the Bible, if someone touched that ark, they died immediately. People couldn't be in the presence of God, so the high priest, after this major process of cleansing himself, could enter into this most holy part of the altar only once a year. But when the Spirit was poured out, the temple, the definition of the temple of the people of God changed. It became the people who, know, who calls on the name of Jesus, the people that are filled by His Spirit. We are, the Bible says now, His temple. We are His people. Not because, the Bible says, of our direct lineage from Abraham, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ. God chose to be present there and He chooses to be present in our lives because after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, there is no more limit to where the Spirit is. He is everywhere at all times. And He has chosen me and He has chosen you and He has set us apart and we are dear to His heart. So why would He not listen to us? Listen, if my kids come to me and they ask me, from the bottom of the hearts for anything, I am attentive to their little hearts. And God is such a more perfect father than I can ever be. So why do you think he will not listen to you? 
Why do you think he won't listen and he won't answer if he's a loving father and a promise keeper? Why do you think he won't hear your prayer for revival when he says revival will bring honor and glory to my name? That's what God is about. So I want to close this series with this. What are you going to do with all of this info about revival? We heard what it is. We heard when it comes. We've heard what it does in our life. We've, we've covered all of the topics. What are you going to do with it? At this point of time, I think we can all agree that we have all heard with our ears about revival, but that we haven't seen with our eyes yet all that God can do. And I'm not okay with just hearing, I want to see. About 400 years after that promise that God made, just before the temple is finally destroyed, after God has warned His people and all of the kings numerous times that you need to turn back to me, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 22 verse 30. And he says this. I'm looking for someone among my people who would build up the wall. Who would stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will pour out my wrath and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Four hundred years. A promise that could stand the taste of time. People that still carried the name of God, that gathered like us every week to worship Him. People who read that promise over and over and over. God is like, I'm looking for one person to stand in the gap. I'm looking for just one to say, the state of my land, the state of my church, the state of my temple and the city is not okay. One. And I couldn't find one. So my question is, will you stand in the gap? Because God is looking for someone who says, this is enough. We need God to change things. We need God to intervene. And that is where revival starts. Revival starts in the hearts of people like me and people like you. It says like, we will stand in the gap. We will rebuild the wall. We will stand for something else. People who say they were left to Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. We know it's needed. So you can sit here today and you can look at someone else or you can dream about revival after all the stories you heard. But at the end of the day, revival starts in this little circle. God is asking, will you stand in the gap? Let's pray.
Jesus, just like the city of Jerusalem that was busy falling apart, disconnected from the Creator and the Savior. I see the church across the Western world falling apart as well. Not because you are not a promise keeper, but because we are not willing to stand in the gap. Jesus, we want to see revival come. We want to see you move in a way that we have never seen before, in a way that we've only heard of. We want to see a nation changed because of the amazing power of our God. I stand before you today, Jesus, and I ask for forgiveness for our wicked ways that we so often just talk away. And ask forgiveness that when we stand before a holy God with our dirty hands, that we don't always even ask for forgiveness. But thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. Thank you for a sacrifice that was big enough to cleanse us from our sins so that when our Father looks at us, that He sees we created us to be and not the mess that we've made. I pray today, Jesus, for people that will stand in the gap. That will not let these messages of revival just be another word that goes in one ear and out another. But that people will stand up. That we will humble ourselves. That we will pray and seek your face. that we will turn from our wicked ways. Come restore your church, Jesus. Come heal us. Pray it in your name. Before we close and head over to communion, I don't want this moment to just pass, so I want to ask for you to just keep your eyes closed. And if you are here today and you do not know Jesus yet, and you have not experienced the life-changing beauty of following your Creator, I want to give you an opportunity today to do that. The Bible says if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then you have been saved and you are saved. I want to do that first. Because we're going to take communion today and we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for you and for me. But if you're here today and you still need, you still need to encounter Jesus, you need a revival in your own heart today because it's dead and broken and ugly and hurt. This is your chance. So with all our eyes closed, I want to encourage you today. If you're watching online, you're invited to do this as well. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, if you want to surrender your life to His, if you want to follow Him, will you just raise your hand so I can see and I can pray with you? Thank you. This is how simple it is, okay? 
we're going to pray a prayer and I ask that you pray it with me in your own heart. Jesus, you know my brokenness. You know my sin. I come before you today and I give it to you. Because on my own, I'm not enough. On my own, I can't solve it. But Jesus, I come to you because you have already conquered sin and death. I give my life to you today. I surrender my will to your will. And I pray, Jesus, make me new. Give me a new life. Give me a new start. Bring revival about in my own heart. Thank you for your son, God. Thank you for forgiveness in Jesus. I believe, Jesus, that you are my Lord, that you are my Savior. From today, I will live for you. Amen.